Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. Oh, that was very kind. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. I feel like I should be standing and clapping for you guys because we are one church together this morning. Good morning. Hi. It's great to be with you all. Like Adam said, my name is Jeff. We are kicking off a brand new series this morning that I'm very much looking forward to. I'm very honored and privileged to open up this series with you guys. And yes, we are talking about idols. And probably for most of us in the room, including myself, you're probably the type of person who's like, yeah, you know, I don't really stash like little golden statues or like I have like little fashioned cows in my closet that I bow down and pray to, right? That's not really me, but uh, the church I was growing up at, we supported this uh, pastor who was boots on the ground. His name was Pastor Suresh in India, and he came to speak at our church one weekend, and he's looking out at our church, incredible preacher, incredible man of God. He said, you know, the culture and the people that I have to minister to, they worship hundreds and hundreds of different gods. But at least we name them and recognize them. And I just felt the air suck out of the room. And the aha was is that oftentimes in our Western way of thinking is that we kind of resurrect these little gods, these little lowercase g gods in our hearts, and then they take place. And so in this series, we want to unpack how does that actually happen and what are some of those little idols that we build up? Because we tend to think that idols are another religion's God, but what is an idol? What is an idol? Anything that is more important to you than God that absorbs your heart and mind more than God. So anything that absorbs your heart and your mind more than God, and this is very key, or anything you seek to give you what God can actually give. The outcome for you is typically significance, value, security. See, when we open up uh, our Bible, and if you ever look at your Old Testament, you'll see that God's chosen people, the Israelites, they struggled with worshiping idols. And you always kind of think, like, that's weird. Why would they do that? They have the God of the universe, Yahweh himself, on their side. Why would they fashion a golden calf? Why would they choose to adopt another culture's God and then worship it? And then they keep getting in trouble for it. Well, let me give you an example. Uh, the Israelites turned to this one God uh, called Baal, B-A-A-L. And what happened was the Israelites went three years without rain. And so if you can imagine, if your economic system is built upon crops and harvesting, going three years without rain is pretty tough, right? It's, everybody's on the struggle bus with that. And so... They feel like God is not showing up. So they turn to the Canaanite god, Baal. What is God? What is Baal the god of? Fertility and rain, folks. Our God, Yahweh himself, the God of the universe, feels like he's not showing up in our lives. So we're going to start reaching to something else that can fill that void. Do you resonate with that at all? I certainly do. 
in the places where I feel like God is not showing up in my life, well, it would feel a lot more safe if I could just have a little bit more security here. Or if I could just jockey for this position here, I don't really need God to show up in this. And so this is nothing new. And the important factor is that more often than not, our idols are not even bad things. That's why most of us, we don't realize that we have them because they are good things that we have made ultimate things. It's not necessarily that we want bad things, but we want good things too much. Uh, But ultimately, why should we have this conversation about idols? Why? Other than the fact of, hey, it's probably good to to worship the real God, the God of the universe, the God that actually loves you, the God that actually died for you. What actually, uh, what implications does this have up close in our lives? Take a look at this. Idolatry will lead to immorality, and immorality will lead to imprisonment. If we walk down the path of having idols take hold in our lives, it is a for sure thing that that will lead us to a place of immorality, and immorality will always lead us to imprisonment. John Calvin says this, that our hearts are idol factories. Martin Luther believed that any violation of the Ten Commandments begins with a violation of the First Commandment, putting anything above God in our lives, i.e., if it's a lie, it's because I've set something in my heart above God that is worth lying for. If I steal, it is because it's worth stealing for. It is about putting God aside, And so while there's hundreds of different service idols, we could talk about money being an idol. We're going to spend the next few weeks looking at uh, empty promises of the four root idols. We're calling these root idols, okay? So approval, comfort, control. But this morning, we're looking at power. Power, baby. And I don't know about you, but I felt like I had to look up the definition of power Uh, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. So power is the capacity, this is from Oxford, power is the capacity or ability to direct or influence the behavior of others or the course of events. So we've kind of come up with a little quippy sub-tag of this this morning, and it's power, the idol of the most influential. The most influential. That's the little tiny gold statue that we would love to get and hold is just be, hey, I'm the most influential person in the room. I have the microphone. (laughs) Now, if you're like me, admittedly, when I hear the word power, I'm like, that's like really not my thing. I'm I'm not Thanos. I don't wish to wield the infinity gauntlet. You know, that, I, I don't, that's not, uh, that doesn't really appeal to me that much. I'm not like Sauron looking for the ring of power, the one ring to rule them all, right? Like this is the stuff that we think of when we think of power, you know? Uh, but here's the reality. We're actually fascinated with power. We're fascinated with power. Why? And how do I know this? Because all of the stories and the movies and the TV shows are typically built on a storyline of somebody seeking some sort of position or power or redeeming power or redeeming their position, right? And so we're fascinated with this. And what do we also know? What do we also know? This takes a little bit of honesty on our part. If I were to ask you, hey, would you like 
a little bit more influence in your life next week? Would you like the capacity to be able to maybe influence and change people a little bit more? What would you say? Yes. It's in the same vein of, if I gave you $10,000, no strings attached, would that make your life better? The answer is yes, folks. The answer is yes. And with that, I actually trust that you guys are pretty decent folks in here. And the reason why you're saying yes, I don't even think is purely selfish, right? Yes, it could make your life easier. Yes, 10,000 more dollars can make your life easier. Yes, more influence can make your life easier. But also, we do recognize it can make other people's lives easier. Of course. Here's the problem. I'll give you that $10,000. I'll give you that bit more of influence. Let's come back in two weeks. Do you want $10,000 more? Yes. Yes. Do you want a little bit more influence? Yes. Yes. Because I would love to bless people more. Now, here's what happens, though. Here's what happens. What happens when we get everything we want? We get buried in a grave of craving. You can have more, but you can never have enough. When what happens when we get everything we want? We get buried in a grave of craving. So there's this really interesting tension that we find ourselves in, in this whole conversation about power and influence. So here's a question. Does God want us to have power? The answer is yes. We find this right in the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28. I'm not going to take time to unpack the entire thing. But basically what God does is that he creates humanity. And then he gives us, here comes, rule and dominion. That is power and influence, folks. That is power. They will reign over the fish and the sea, the birds in the sky. Go to the next verse on there, and you guys can see it. He creates us in his own image. And then in the final verse, we see how we are called to rule and reign. But then Jesus would say, Jesus himself would say, what good is it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul. So, should Christians aim to gain influence? I believe yes. Christians should be very concerned about their influence. We spent the last four weeks in the entire previous series talking about the political powder keg with the undertone of how to not torch our relationships, a.k.a. how to not give up your influence in something to where it's just easy to just lose it. Politics. We should be concerned about our influence. So what do we do with it? Well, this is what I believe. I believe very much, and this is where Christians can get themselves in trouble. This is where I've gotten myself in trouble. I believe very, very, very much that you cannot do Jesus' work without doing it Jesus' way. 
And this is where Christians get in trouble because what happens is, is we latch onto this what? We have this holy, righteous mission. And then what happens is, is in the midst of it, our hearts get distorted. And because we have the right and because we have the answer, because we have the answer for everybody. And if everybody just adopted our answer, everything would be right. Then we take whatever means necessary to get there. But Jesus says, oh, kid, Jeff, you little peon, it doesn't work that way. You can't do my work without doing it the way that I would do it. What you hold is just as important as how you hold it. And I think oftentimes, I will be the first to raise my hand, we get the how wrong. So, in the conversation about power, how did Jesus go about exercising it? Because let's just call it as it is. He's the most powerful person in the world. So what did he do with it? So we're going to look at two interactions with Jesus and his closest disciples, where Jesus illustrates how power would look. And if we have time, I'm just kind of keeping an eye on the clock, we'll get to the third, but we probably won't. And if you want to know what the third is, you can ask me after service, and I'll tell you to look it up and study it on your own. Homework. All right, here we go. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 20. I'm reading out of the NASB, which is the most literal translation from the original Greek. And oh, somebody's like, ooh, NASB, wow. <laughs> Clap for NASB translation, everybody. All right, here we go. <laughs> Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee. You're already like, who are the sons of Zebedee? The sons of Zebedee are James and John. James and John. Okay, some of Jesus' closest disciples. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, James and John, bowing down and making a request of him. He said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command, by the way, I feel like if I was in the presence of the savior of the world, the anointed one, I would never say the word command. But maybe I would, I don't know. Command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left. Then Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. If you're wondering what the cup is that he is referring to, he is referring to his death upon the cross and the price that he would pay for the sins of the world. And arrogantly and ignorantly, they said, we're able. Real smart. I'd probably be the same. We are able. Verse 23. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right hand and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the 10 became indignant. They became agitated or irritated with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Basically, he's saying the rest of the way that the world works is a top-down approach. They lord it over them. And now here's the turn. Get ready for this. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give 
his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is essentially saying, let me remind you how things will work in my kingdom. This is the way. Oh, there it is, the Mandalorian. This is the way. This is the way things need to be done. The rest of the world has this top-down approach. They lord their authority over everybody, but if you are a Jesus follower, if you are one of my disciples, if you say that you follow me, if you say that I am Lord, you do it my way. And let me tell you how that is. You do not come to be served, but you come to serve. And then deeper, get ready to lay your life down as a ransom. Now, Jesus is referring to this cup. This cup is his to bear, right? And so he says, you cannot drink of this cup, but, but you will drink of it. Uh, there's a lot of debate on how that is translated, what that means. And, and that basically means... Uh, if James is going to get crucified or, sorry, murdered or martyred in Jesus' name later on, uh, my personal take on it is that Jesus is saying, you may die in my name, but you cannot bear the weight of the sins of the world. That is my burden alone. But let me remind you, this is how it works. See, oftentimes we see Jesus' disciples get caught up in their predisposition of how the Messiah should act and exercise his power. Very simply put, they wanted to put Jesus in a box. I'm so glad we have learned from that and that I never do that. <laughs> you know? Like, as if the savior of the world is here. Great, let me hand him my agenda and tell him how he should save the world. <laughs> right? Let me, let me show Jesus how it should happen, how things should play out, the way that he should go about doing his ministry, the way that he should act, the way that he should be, the way that he should benefit me, of course. Can I sit at your right hand? Can I sit at your left hand? Jesus, can you answer that prayer? Because I've been waiting on you for a very long time. I'm so glad I don't wrestle with that anymore. <laughs> we don't ever put Jesus in a box. Yes, of course. Of course, and Jesus, very gently, not so with you. This is how it works, kid. This is how it works. So here's the big idea of today's message. A preoccupation with power masquerades as confidence, but it is really afraid of loss and humiliation. A preoccupation with power masquerades as confidence, but it is really afraid of loss and humiliation. And we see... This preoccupation of power with James and John. Actually, it's really interesting. If you look at this same passage in Mark's account, the book of Mark, it, it leaves out that the mom does the asking, you know? So it kind of softens the blow how the mom is like, eh, will you let my sons? But in Mark's account, it's very blatant what they want. And they're preoccupied with their position that they may hold. Because what happens in the previous verses, verses 17, and, uh, 17 through 19 that we didn't look at? Jesus tells them that I'm going to die this death, but I'm going to be resurrected. Ooh, I want in on that. I want to be on the winning team. Can I sit at your right and left hand? See, notice that we know the end of the story with Jesus, but 
I want you to do this for a second. And if it helps to close your eyes just to kind of zone out a little bit, you can do this. But put yourself in the place of the disciples not knowing the end of the story. Because remember, for them, it's unfolding in front of their very eyes. Put yourself in the place of the disciples in their story when Jesus is being betrayed and beaten and hung upon the cross. Oh, no. There goes our Messiah. There goes the anointed one. We lost. What do they feel? Humiliation and loss. And we know this because they all fled. When Peter, the boldest of all Jesus' disciples, was asked, hey, are you associated with this guy? What did Peter do? I'm out. He denies Jesus. He denies Jesus. They felt loss and humiliation. Let's look at this passage. This is before Jesus' uh, journey to the cross. This might be familiar to some of you if you've kind of read the, the passion story, but this is found in, uh, where are we at? Mark. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples, the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questions his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets, and he continued questioning them. But who do you say that I am? Peter, we gotta love Peter. Peter answered him and said, you are the Christ. Christ, translating the anointed one sent to redeem the world. Verse 30. And he warned them, Jesus, warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter, the matter plainly, excuse me. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. In Matthew's account, I want to add this in. In the gospel of Matthew's account, Peter says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Notice what just happened. Jesus, you're right. I'm the son of God. Now, here's what's got to happen. I got to die. Peter's response, never, never. Back in Mark, verse 33. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Oh, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Look at Peter's response. Never, Lord. Never. Man, that story took a quick turn. He went from recognizing that Jesus was the Son of God, the anointed one, here to save the world, to being called Satan, get behind me. What was happening? I believe that Peter, we look at the life of Peter, he's very emotional, very reactionary. And you would be too. I would be too. Because the one that we are putting our trust and faith in is just telling me that we are going to lose the battle. Wait, wait, wait. You're the son of God? You're going to die? We're going to lose? We're going to get Michael Jordan on our team and then start losing? That's not how this works. Never. 
Never. But Jesus has something more in mind. See, we may not say that we resurrect, resurrect little idols, stash them in our homes, and bow down and worship them. But we have to recognize they can be dangerously prevalent and just kind of creep up in these moments or just simmer there. So here's a question. How do we notice them before they take hold, especially in the conversation of power? Because that's what we're talking about this morning. How do we know if the idol of power is starting to just kind of take a little bit of a root and then starting to build and fester? One of the main key triggers is anger. Anger. And if you wrestle with anger, that may be a sign that there's your idol. Now, challenges and competition are primary, val- uh, primary avenues of experiencing power. And so when losing happens, anger can flare up. Again, it's not that competition is bad. Winning and influence are good things. But when we find our identity in those things, they become an idol. In fact, someone who worships power may not even have winning as their primary motivation as much as it is to avoid losing. They feel, just as the disciples did, exposed and embarrassed and humiliated when it happens. Again, put yourself in the place of the disciples. Where were they during Jesus' crucifixion, except for one of them? They were gone. We lost. We followed this guy for over three years, and we lost. Oh, man. Jesus had so much. He was up to something. I love it. I was watching. uh, Any Star Wars fans out there? Uh, A few? Okay, great. I was going to throw something out there. I was was watching the, the most recent episode of Ahsoka this week, one of my favorite Star Wars characters. Uh, this last Wednesday, I'm like casually watching it. I'm like, oh, this is really good. Man, Dave Filoni is a great writer. Oh, man, this is, feels really like Star Wars. And then she says this, anger and frustration are quick to give power. Ooh. And they imbalance you. I mean, she's talking about the force, but. <laughs> <laughs> but, man, how true is that? How often can we find ourselves just bolstering up and we feel like we have this power that we can assert over people. Now, I'm going to step out of my notes for a second. I want to make it very clear. Anger is not a sin. We see Jesus get angry. You know the difference between his anger and mine, though? My anger being that can lead me to sin? His anger was never about himself. Think about that. The times he got angry, it was never about himself. It was about the perversion of what they were doing to his father's temple and then what he saw done to others. When Jesus was being beaten and tortured, he never got angry. My anger, I'll be really honest, my anger is a self-righteous anger. It is the anger because of things that are done to me. Most of the time. We don't have time to get to the third one. Talk to me about it afterwards. (laughs) I feel like everybody's going to walk up to me afterwards. Now, 
If you struggle with anger, the people around you can often feel used because you tend to value what they can do for you more than who they are as an individual. Your relationships are built on what people bring to the table and will increase your influence or increase your power. And so the world's way of power says this, and it doesn't overtly say this, but we know it says this. Utilize and leverage others. And here's Jesus's way. Get ready. Die for others. It's completely backwards. Christians, if you're a Christ follower, I want to say something, and then hopefully you will stew on this. Somebody said this to me years ago, and it will not leave me. There is a very thin line between actually loving somebody and manipulating them. A very thin line. And oftentimes, I have to check my heart and saying, was I really loving that person? Or did I just do something to get what I want? Am I really loving this person with no strings attached? Or is there something in it for me? Now, the one hook I would put in that is I want to, the one thing I want to like, Say, well, you know, kind of, I, I, would, I would hold that over, is to win people over for Jesus and the gospel so that they would know him. But other than that, all the other selfish stuff, it could be dangerously manipulative. So we talked about anger being an indicator of power. And honestly, I'm not the type of person to where I actually really struggle with anger, to be honest. Uh, sadness and depression is my motif. My, my, uh, my, my way to go uh, and disappointment. Uh, but two years ago, two years ago, uh, I left a job um, and uh, a church family uh, just through a really messy transition. And I noticed, and I debated whether or not sharing this with you guys because it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of vulnerable. Um, but the last two years, I have felt a genuine welling up of anger that I've never felt or experienced in my life, like a deep-rooted anger about certain people, to God, situations, scenarios, conversations that were had. And as I started thinking about it and drilling down in that, you know why I had that anger? Because I wish I had the power to change what happened. I'm resentful that I didn't. And I wish I had the influence over that certain person that I couldn't move the needle in. And so it makes me angry. I've been wrestling with that with God quite a bit. And there's two things that it feels like God has kind of just been nudging me in along the way. And I haven't arrived. I haven't figured it out. But here's the two things. Number one, hey, Jeff, kid, I love you so much. Bring that to me. Bring that to me. I've been there too. The second thing is derived out of that scripture in Matthew 20, 26. Not so with you. So if you want to continue to be great, you need to start learning to die to yourself. You need to start learning to die. So let's move to a very practical application. Jesus shows us and calls us how 
to live a redeemed relationship with power, one that is more beautiful than anything we can imagine on our own. It's a power that flows from our security in Christ. And if you don't know Jesus today, get to know him. It flows from our security in Christ. It's a power that is used for others, and it is a power that serves our Heavenly Father's kingdom. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite authors, who's actually a Catholic priest, says this, What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. And my goodness, everybody, that is so true of me as I walk through this whole journey. It would be so much easier if I could just change that person rather than love them. It'd be so much easier if I could just change that whole scenario and wish that it never happened rather than see what God was up to in it. So any power that we get is intended to be used for serving others and inviting God's kingdom to break through into our world. By the way, if you're the type of person, again, we can debate this all day long, but if you're the type of person that is like, "Eh, Jesus is a pacifist, I will debate you on that. I was going to say I'll fight you on that, but whatever. (laughs) I don't want to scare anybody away. But what Jesus is doing takes an immense amount of courage and proactivity. Folks, that is not passive. Laying down your life is not a passive thing. Dying for others, being beaten, laying down your preferences, your opinions, that is not passivity, folks. That's actually a choice. It's a proactive choice, and it takes a lot of hard work in partnership with his Holy Spirit to do that. Oh, I was getting fired up there for a second. Okay, let's just go to the practical application part. So here's what I would love for us all to do. So we got a two-part application here. Number one, learn to embrace the, the type of power that Jesus calls us to. And you can memorize that Matthew 20, 26 verse, uh, not so with you. You could just start with that, not so with you. Whoever wants to be great in my kingdom needs to learn to serve, lay down his life. Sorry, I'm kind of paraphrasing the passage for a second. Obviously, I clearly haven't memorized the NASB version, right? But here is the second thing, very practically. What I want you to do if you find yourself with wrestling with idolatry and having a hard time uh, finding any inclination to want to serve. Like if, you're like, if you're in the boat of saying, Jeff, that all sounds great. Laying down your life, that sounds nice. Or serving others, that sounds nice. But honestly, I have zero motivation to do that. I have zero inkling to do that. Let's go back to this. Idolatry, immorality, imprisonment. I purposefully left off one. Because it actually starts a little bit further back. It starts with ingratitude. Let's put that slide up. Ingratitude leads to idolatry, leads to immorality, leads to imprisonment. So how do we push back against idolatry? Start at the beginning and cultivate gratitude, church. By the way, if you're not a Christian, you can still do this. How fun is that? (laughs) Cultivate gratitude. Get in the habit of saying, thank you, Lord. 
thank you that you see me. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you haven't forgotten about me. Thank you that you care for me. Thank you that you care for my kids. Thank you that you care for my church. Thank you for you, that you care for the guy that's operating the camera. You know? Cultivate gratitude. Because here's what I know. Serving always starts as an overflow of gratitude. If you are in the place where you're serving or you feel like you have to serve, but you do not have gratitude in your heart, that will run out real quick. Or you'll just become resentful. That's not fun. Right? You're being forced to do something. But if you have gratitude, this is the way that we push back against idolatry, everybody. Cultivate gratitude. Let's do this right now. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. You guys can close your eyes where you're at. And we're going to take a moment. I always like to take, to take the moment to do this at the end of every message because I've done a lot of talking. And we can just kind of enter into a posture of prayer right now. <clears throat> Whatever is helpful for you. Sometimes for me, I like to just close my eyes, have my hands open in my lap. That's just a symbol of just receiving what God has for me, but recognize a few things. I've done a lot of talking, but my hope is that, Holy Spirit, you would be the one that is actually doing the real talking in people's hearts, the real convicting, the real moving, and that, God, you would bring to mind Maybe the little idols that we've kind of just been building. Maybe some of them aren't being built upward, but they're actually taking more of a root that is downward. God, my first prayer for everybody here, and even if you're not a Christian, you can do this too, is that you would bring to mind the specific things that we can be grateful for. Maybe just where you're at. You could just say, thank you. Thank you, God. For whatever it is that God is bringing to mind for you. Jesus, I pray specifically for those that are in a place specifically where it feels like anger has kind of taken root, where it is becoming a bit more consuming, where it plagues our mind and our heart. Jesus, I just pray that your nearness would be felt, your presence would be felt in what we are wrestling with, what we are going through. Help us to be courageous people that turn to you because we know that you're reaching out to us. You're good. You're full of grace. You love us. Your love is unending. And we can come to you just as we are. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Amen.
Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.